You're listening to Comedy Central. January 13, 2020. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Take a seat. I'm Trevor Noah. Our guest tonight is an actor and a comedian here to talk about his new Broadway play. David Allen Greer is joining us, everybody. So excited. Also on tonight's show, the royal family is royally screwed. Cory Booker joins the race for vice president, and Donald Trump can't remember why he started a war. So let's catch up (laughs) on today's headlines. Let's kick it off with the Academy Awards, the biggest night of the year for actors and red carpet salesmen. Today, (laughs) the Academy announced this year's nominations, and as always, it was who got left out that's got everyone talking. This year's Oscar nominations were announced this morning. And there were some big surprises and some big snubs as well. Joker taking the lead with 11 nominations. No women nominated in the director's category. Greta Gerwig definitely was snubbed this morning for Little Women. The Irishman, Martin Scorsese. Joker, Todd Phillips. 1917, Sam Mendes. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Quentin Tarantino. And Parasite, Bong Joon-ho. Congratulations. Wow, Issa Rae, damn. You know you're in trouble when someone can throw shade by congratulating you. (laughs) And I'll be honest, I get why she said that, right? Because those aren't just all male directors, those are all very male movies. Like, if you take out Parasites, women probably have 10 minutes of dialogue in all the other films combined. Like, there's no reason women shouldn't have bigger roles in these movies, except for 1917, because women weren't invented until the 30s. (laughs) That's a fact. I mean, like, where's Little Women? Personally, I love the movie, right? Also, the Oscar voters love the movie, which is weird. It's really strange, because it was nominated for six awards, including Best Picture, Best Screenplay, two acting nominations, but then somehow Greta Gerwig wasn't nominated for director. How the hell does that happen? That was just two people like, what an amazing movie. Yeah, and did you know the movie directed itself? Wow, that's incredible. (laughs) I mean, I'm glad that at least one black woman was nominated for Best Actress. Congratulations, Cynthia Erivo. That's exciting. (laughs) Although, it is kind of predictable that it was for playing a slave. Yeah. I'm not saying she didn't deserve it, but just imagine if every white actor who was nominated got it for playing a supervisor at Whole Foods, huh? (laughs) White people, you're more than just that. (laughs) But you know what was the biggest snub for me? Film editing. How are you not gonna nominate the guy who edited the Jeffrey Epstein security tapes? How? (laughs) How? Speaking of snubs, the Democratic Party has been criticized recently for its debate stage becoming as white as the Oscars. And today's news is not gonna help. Breaking news on the 2020 race. Senator Cory Booker is out. The senator making that announcement online just moments ago. Today, I'm suspending my campaign for president with the same spirit with which it began. Campaigning over this last year has been one of the most meaningful experiences of my life. That's right. Cory Booker has announced that he is officially quitting the Democratic presidential race. And look, you can quit however you want, 
but I do think it's weird that his quitting video doesn't look like he's quitting. <laughs> he's out there with crowds, shaking hands. <laughs> and everyone does this. My opinion is if you're gonna drop out of the race, your video should look like you dropped out of the race. <laughs> it should just be you sitting alone on a park bench <laughs> or cleaning out your desk. I want it to look depressing. But yeah, whatever happens in November, America will not be electing a black president. And you know, Obama must be secretly happy about this. Yeah. <laughs> He's probably in Martha's Vineyard like, oh, that's right. Uh, first and last, bitches. I'm the blackest of all time. What you know about that? And you have to admit, between the Oscars and this, this is definitely not a great week for liberals in America, right? Because think about it, Democrats in Hollywood are always talking about how important diversity is but they're the ones who always seem to end up celebrating a bunch of white people, you know? And this is almost like finding out Greta Thunberg secretly hunts polar bears in a race car, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just like, imagine you found that about her. Like, you're actually doing the thing that you tell other people not to do. And finally, some nature news. While Democrats may be worried about having fewer and fewer candidates to choose from, for the Galapagos tortoises, numbers are an issue they won't have to worry about for a while. And it's all thanks to one hero. A giant tortoise credited with saving species is being returned to its home in the wild. Diego, a Galapagos giant tortoise, is jokingly called a playboy because he spent 40 years helping to repopulate his species. When he started in the program, he was one of two males and 12 females left on the island. Now there are more than 2,000. Well done, Diego. Yay. Experts estimate 40% of those tortoises are related to him. Now he's headed to his native island of Espanola in March to retire, cause he's exhausted. Thank you for your service, Diego. This is an amazing story. This hero turtle turned a population of less than 20 tortoises into 2,000. Just look at him in the water there, huh? Cooling his balls off. You earned it, buddy. And let this be a lesson to kids out there. If someone tells you to go out and practice safe sex, you tell them, no, I want to be like Diego the f turtle. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking, safe sex, safe sex, I'm joking, come on. <laughs> I gotta be honest, you know when I first heard this story, Diego reminded me of those uncles in the hood that you'd hear about? You know where people would be chatting like, you heard how many kids Diego got? <laughs> 2,000, for real, for real. <laughs> I heard he ran away to an island to avoid child support. <laughs> also, I love how Diego is the hero of the story and not the females who actually gave birth to 2,000 babies. <laughs> Who's running this, the Oscar voters? <laughs> now look, jokes aside, Diego did help repopulate the species, but he wasn't the only turtle responsible for fathering the 2,000 kids. Yeah, there was another turtle who helped Diego out and he retired to the Senate. All right, <laughs> that's it for the headlines. Let's move on to our top story. <laughs> the British royal family. They're like the Kardashians with an occasional beheading. <laughs> now, the royal family has had plenty scandals in their time, but right now, they're going through an unprecedented crisis. Last week, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle announced that they're no longer going to be on the family phone plan anymore. And so today, <laughs> the queen called everyone together for an emergency royal summit. 
We move now. We just mm -hmm. mentioned a couple seconds ago the latest drama surrounding the royals. The queen, as we speak, holding a crisis summit with her family in the wake of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's stunning decision to step back from their role. Harry and his dad, Charles, and brother William were there. And Meghan Markle reportedly called in from Canada. Yes, the queen summoned everyone to a private meeting at her royal country house. And everyone attended except Meghan Markle, who conference called in. And I'll be honest, I don't blame Meghan for not going because nothing good happens when white people invite you to the countryside, <laughs> all right? We all know. We've all seen it. We've all seen Get Out. We know how this shit ends. <laughs> and by the way, how gangster is it that the queen is 93 years old and still driving herself, huh? <laughs> That is so dope, 93 years old. She's in a Range Rover like she's in a hip hop video from the 90s. <laughs> like you could throw some biggie under that clip and it wouldn't look out of place. <laughs> anyway, the big question everyone's asking right now is, why? <laughs> Why would Harry and Meghan want out of a life that so many people dream of having? I mean, think about it. We kiss frogs to try and become royalty, <laughs> huh? The only thing I've ever gotten is frog herpes. <laughs> but for Harry and Meghan in particular, the reality of being a royal couple has been far from a fairy tale. Just a few months into their relationship, British tabloids descended on them with racially charged headlines and commentary, like this one from the Daily Mail that read, Harry's girl is almost straight out of Compton. A British DJ has been fired for a controversial tweet about the royal baby. The BBC's Danny Baker posted a photo showing a couple holding hands with a chimpanzee, and the caption read, royal baby leaves hospital. The wife of one of the Queen's cousins, Princess Michael of Kent, wore what's called a blackamoor brooch to the Queen's annual Christmas lunch with Harry and Meghan in attendance. The jewelry is widely viewed as racist for its depiction of black people. Wow. Wearing a blackamoor brooch to meet Meghan's, like, family? You're meeting Meghan Markle, you're meeting everyone else? That is next level. Like, I wonder if this woman has a cabinet full of racist brooches for different occasions. <laughs> like, who even has that? Is she just like, Jeeves, I'm off to Korea. Fetch me my necklace of a dog in a frying pan, please. <laughs> We're going all the way. But this shows you, this shows you some of what Meghan was up against, right? To her critics, you've got to understand, Meghan was everything people didn't want in the royal family. She's black, she's from the middle class, she's a divorcee, and worst of all, she said the American version of The Office is way better. <laughs> And the biggest, the biggest culprit of the Meghan criticism has been the British tabloid press. I mean, just look at a few of these stories. It went viral this weekend, like how they covered Meghan in comparison to Kate Middleton, right? Direct, direct stories. When Kate was pregnant, the Daily Mail said, pregnant Kate tenderly cradles her baby bump. But when Meghan did the exact same thing, the headline was, why can't Meghan Markle keep her hands off her bump? Is it pride, vanity, acting? The press did this with everything. When Kate was pregnant, the Express said that she was eating avocados for her morning sickness cure. But then when Meghan ate them, suddenly Meghan's beloved avocados were linked to human rights abuse and drought. Yeah. And I mean, think about it. Prince Andrew's over here having sleepovers at Jeffrey Epstein's house, and the British press is like, Meghan Markle ordered guacamole. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's completely understandable that Harry and Meghan would want to step away from all of this hate in the UK. 
But now, everyone is wondering what they'll do to support themselves without any of that royal cash. Well, good news, Meghan's already got herself a job. Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex, is reportedly working on a deal to record a voiceover for Disney. Meghan and Prince Harry met with Disney CEO at the London premiere of The Lion King in July, where Harry appeared to discuss possible future projects. Okay, wait, Prince Harry really did that? <laughs> At a movie premiere last year, he asked the CEO of Disney to hook his wife up with voiceovers. And I mean, don't get me wrong, on the one hand, husband goals. <laughs> on the other hand, you gotta admit the monarchy has fallen off, right? <laughs> no, because back in the day, it used to be like, if you marry my daughter, I'll give you burgundy. And now it's like, my wife actually does a pretty good Timon. You should hear her. <laughs> Come on, baby, do the thing. Hakuna, Hakuna Matata, do the thing. And you know what's funny is, whenever you see the world's most powerful people talking, we always assume that they're talking about important things like climate change or world peace or the next Illuminati orgy, but it turns out <laughs> they're all just hustling. Yeah, it's like, oh, did I mention I started selling fudge? Take uh, my card with my website on it. It's billgatesfudge.com. <laughs> but that's where we are right now. Meghan and Harry are on their way to a new life. The press is losing one of their favorite targets, and the queen is so angry about it that she's about to go do some drive-bys. We'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back to The Daily Show. Last week, the United States and Iran narrowly avoided World War III. And I was so relieved, I celebrated by kissing a stranger in Times Square. <laughs> I didn't get his name, I just know that he was very ticklish. So, how are both countries dealing with the aftermath of the Soleimani assassination? Well, let's find out in our ongoing segment, War in the Middle East. This time, it's Persianal. <laughs> right now, Iran's supreme leader and America's supreme tweeter are both coming under fire for lying to their people. So let's start with Iran. After three days of denials, the government of Iran has admitted that when they launched missiles at American targets in Iraq, they also accidentally shot down a passenger plane. And now the people of Iran are demanding accountability. Tensions flared in Tehran as anti-government demonstrators protested the regime's stunning admission that it mistakenly shot down a Ukrainian jetliner. It all started with a candlelight vigil, but quickly morphed into crowds chanting, the Revolutionary Guards are dictators, and the enemy is not America, it's within. Videos show at least one protester attacking a poster of Qasim Soleimani. People were also heard cheering as a picture of Soleimani was burned. Yes, the streets of Iran have been overrun by protesters furious at their own government. I mean, you see them, they're angry. And that guy's losing the fight against the poster. <laughs> and it's not just them. Everyone is mad. Canada is mad, America's mad, Ukraine is mad. Everyone is upset that Iran shot down that plane. Well, except for Boeing. Yeah, because they're like, yes, this plane crash wasn't our fault. For once, it wasn't our fault. That wasn't us this time. <laughs> so this weekend, saw three days of public demonstrations against the regime in Iran. And last night, President Trump 
decided to fan those flames of protest. President Trump offering support to the Iranian people, tweeting in Farsi and in English, my administration will continue to stand with you. And later sending a tweet aimed at the leaders in Iran. Do not kill your protesters. The world is watching. More importantly, the USA is watching. That's right, folks. Donald J. Trump is sending tweets in Farsi. <laughs> Welcome to 2020. And I gotta say, I gotta say, it's ballsy for Trump to tweet in a second language when he hasn't even mastered his first. <laughs> I, also, I also like to imagine that Trump dictated that Farsi tweet the way he does his English ones, you know? I just like the idea that he was there and he's like, Khrupnes, Khrupnes, Devar Bissazim, Tavala de Mubarak, folks. Tavala, Tavala, Tavala de Mubarak. Mubarak, Mubarak, Mubarak and Tabala. <laughs> by the way... Oh, and just by the way, by the way, let's be honest, let's be honest. Can you imagine if Obama ever tweeted in Farsi? Can you imagine what was... <laughs> Fox News would have exploded. <laughs> Tucker Carlson would have squinted so hard, his face would collapse into itself like a black hole. But while Trump is stoking unrest in Iran, back home, he's facing challenges of his own because his story about why he killed Soleimani isn't adding up. The president still insisting the killing of Soleimani stopped imminent threats, including attacks at U.S. embassies in the region. The president making the case on Fox News. Did they have large-scale attacks planned for other embassies? Wouldn't that help well, your I can, case? I can reveal that I believe it would have been four embassies, could have been military bases, could have been a lot of other things, too. But it was imminent, and then all of a sudden, he was gone. Whoa, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Wait, you can reveal that you believe? <laughs> no one's asking for your personal belief. This is war, not what color you thought the dress was. I mean... <laughs> and also, what does Trump mean it could have been embassies or bases or a lot of other things, too? Because either Trump is making this up or Soleimani was the most indecisive enemy America's ever had. <laughs> or is he just riding around like, let us attack? An embassy, no, 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 a military base. Wait, oh, what about that McDonald's? Yes. You know what, let's just destroy the milkshake machine. Sir, it's already broken. Excellent, they'll never know. <laughs> so besides Trump, besides Trump, no one believes that Soleimani was planning an imminent attack on everything. And because they don't trust him, the House passed a, resolu a resolution limiting Trump's war powers. And even three Republicans signed onto it. And really, no one knows. No one knows where Trump is getting his information, including his very own defense secretary. Defense Secretary Mark Esper acknowledged Sunday that he saw no specific threat against four U.S. embassies by Qasem Soleimani, contradicting President Trump. I didn't see one with regard to four embassies. He didn't cite a specific piece of evidence. What the president said was he believed that it probably and could have been attacks against additional embassies. You know, I feel so bad for the defense secretary. No, because he's, he's trying to tell the truth while also defending Trump's lie. <laughs> and this is why you should never go into a lie with Donald Trump. Because at some point, he's gonna riff that lie out of control and leave you in the lurch. <laughs> yeah, if you guys work together, you'd be at work like, hey, Donald, I'm sneaking out for some coffee. Tell them I had an important call. And then you'd walk in 10 minutes later and Trump will be giving you a funeral like, rest in peace, Mark. <laughs> His fight with butt cancer inspired us all. <laughs> 
But I guess that's the great thing about America. You can believe whatever you want. The intelligence doesn't point to any imminent attacks, but Trump can reveal that he believes there were four imminent attacks. And I can reveal that I believe he's full of shit. <laughs> we'll be right back. Tonight is a Tony and Grammy Award-nominated actor and comedian who stars in the Broadway debut of the Pulitzer Prize-winning drama, A Soldier's Play. Please welcome David Alan Greer. <laughs> nice. Welcome to the show. What's going on, man? This is uh, one of my favorite moments in life. Ooh. Having you on the show, because you know why? Because I grew up watching you and your cast on In Living Color as one of the funniest group of human beings ever assembled. You know, that's not a compliment, because you said I was a little baby. I didn't say that, I said I, I grew up. I was a child. I said I grew up, why are you putting words in my mouth? I was a toddler I did not watching say you, I didn't a say middle that. to late middle-aged Negro. <laughs> End of your career. <laughs> Still peddling those stereotypic jokes. <laughs> I did not no, say thank that. You. Well, I, I, I changed it a little bit. Just a little, just a little bit. Editorial. <laughs> um, no, but congratulations. The, yeah. This year is going to be 30 years, the 30 year anniversary yes. of In Living Color, yes. which for many people, <laughs> which for many people reshaped the ideas of like what sketch comedy could be, how a joke could be told. Some people feel like it was almost like a moment of protest, but did you ever see it like that? Did you ever see In Living you know, Color as a political statement? At the time, we didn't, but, uh, you know, it, w the moment we were going through it, it was very much about the stuff that we as people of color, black people, would laugh about amongst ourselves. Right. We were able to put it on TV. So it became political, you know? Sometimes you do an action as a, an, an expression of freedom, which becomes political, just wow. because of its point of view. Right. So, so that's really what it was. But in the moment, we just wanted to get off, man. We just wanted to finally tell that joke, you know, that joke I've always been telling backstage, I want to bring it here. Right. And we just threw it out there, man. But it was a ball. It was a ball. I don't think I ever missed a day of work, uh, never. I mean, it was, we had more fun than people watching it. It was really great. <laughs> yes. It felt like it. Yes. It yes, genuinely, yes, yes, genuinely yes. felt like it. And you've gone on to make people laugh. I mean, like, you are one of the funniest human beings Thank you. I've ever seen on screen. Thank you. <laughs> what I, but wait, you know, Trevor. What I, no, but what I, what I didn't know, what I didn't know is I, I genuinely didn't know until a few years ago how powerful you were as a dramatic actor as well, mm -hmm. you know? I try to be, I try to be. I don't think you try to be. I think you succeed in doing that. And you know, that's what this, this, that's what this Broadway play is about. A soldier's play mm -hmm. is, is coming to Broadway and it's a powerful story. Well, you know, I didn't even know it had never been on Broadway. I was in the original production. I right. took over for Larry Riley. I played CJ Memphis. And I was on stage with Sam Jackson, Denzel Washington, Adolf Caesar. Right. This, uh, this was the play many people say actually broke their careers in many yes, ways. Yes, man, yeah. So I did that for about six months. Then I did the movie, uh, and I played Cobb, which was a different role. Mm -hmm. 
And when Kenny Leon called me, he said, you know, this is Broadway debut. And I assumed it had already been on Broadway. And he said, would you play Waters? And I had to do it, man. I had to do it. So it's been a complete circle. It's, it's been a, a complete circle. It's a powerful story as well that seems to, to live eternally. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a story that takes place, if, if I'm not mistaken, in 1944. And yeah, 43. 43, 44, mm-hmm. well, right, actually, 43. 44 because it's after, yes, you're right. Okay. <laughs> and so, and, and, and it's a story specifically from, from you know, it, it's a telling of a story mm-hmm. about black soldiers yeah. who are on a base. Yes. Dealing with the dichotomy of fighting for their country mm-hmm. that oppresses them as second-class citizens. Yeah, and there's very much this belief um, that was there historically, that is there with their characters, that by letting us, black men, fight and die for our country, then maybe this country will view us as whole human beings and whole citizens. So uh, there's a lot of that talk of this will change everything, you know, just our our participation in this war. So... We deal with all that. Yeah, and, and what's interesting... And there's music. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm there's just kidding. no music. It's no. a musical. <laughs> there's no music. No, there's, there's no, no music. music. No, but, but, but it's a... It's a I, I, you know, I, I think it's a powerful story, not mm-hmm. just because of what happens, but because it's a story that also shows you you know, that black people are not a monolith. Mm-hmm. You know, because, you know, it's, it's not a story where it's like black versus white. It's like, no, no, it's so much more complex than that. It's black people themselves saying, I define myself, but this is, this is how I see America. This is how I see America. This is how I see myself in well, America. you know what? I, um, I remember going to see the original production. Mm-hmm. Uh, my college roommate, Reg E. Cathy, who has oh, wow. since passed away, but he auditioned for this role. And he called me up and he said, listen, man, I'm not going to get this part but you should call your agent, tell him to send you in. Cause I know you could get this part. So I did just that. And I went to the theater the night before my audition for Douglas Turner Ward, and I'm watching the play. What you said was one of the unique things back, especially back in 82, where you have these 12 uh, characters, mm-hmm. all black, but with all different opinions, right. all different political points of view. Mm-hmm. So that's really what was unique. And they're all spouting it. I mean, and it was amazing to see on stage. And that's really what, what gives it all that meat, you know, to the story. Are you ever shocked or, or disappointed in any way to think that a story that was written and created in the 80s mm-hmm. could be as pertinent to life in America today? Yeah, I mean, that, there is a sadness there. And I know that, uh, talking to Kenny Leon, he said that Charles Fuller, the author, r- the playwright, really, his great regret to this day is, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, you know, I'm still not able to be free, to walk freely in this country as my true self. So that points to that. You know, I'm... I'm weary. I am tired of talking about the same racial issues, the same uh, incidents of inequality. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it, it's wearying, but this is where we're at. We've come some way as a society, but we have a lot more work to do. 
Well, yeah. it's going to be exciting to see you in this play, playing a third character this time. Mm-hmm. The play uh, runs until March. Thank you so much for being on the show. Man, a true honor. Absolutely. The show just played. Currently in previews, opens January 21st at the American Airlines Theater on Broadway. Make sure you go and see it. David Allen Gray, everybody. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.